The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do what you do to them what you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under my, the authority of my roof, the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the blindness, and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons in law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out. And said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of this city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, O oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to them, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city with which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zor. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of the heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early into the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. This is the word of the Lord.
Cormac McCarthy is one of my favorite living novelists, and he has one book, the third of his border trilogy, called The Cities of the Plain. The Cities of the Plain is named after the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, so that should tell you something about the content of the book. It's pretty classic Cormac McCarthy, not for the faint of heart. It's about two men who have grown up down along the border near El Paso and Juarez as cattle herders and ranchers, and they face all sorts of trouble and learn about themselves in the midst of their difficulties. And one of the profound quotes in the book, towards the end of the book, comes from one of the main characters, John Grady. He says this, My daddy once told me that some of the most miserable people he ever knew were the ones that finally got what they had always wanted. The ones that finally got what they had always wanted were some of the most miserable people he had ever known. That says something profound about the human condition. It says something about what human rebellion against our creator God does to us. When we pursue the things uninhibited that we think we most want and most need, it can sometimes be the worst thing that has ever happened to us. The ancient city of Sodom was a city where that sort of activity was happening uninhibited and unfettered and had been happening for some time. And so we find ourselves here in Genesis chapter 19 considering what happens to this ancient city of Sodom. All the way back in Genesis 13, near the beginning of our journey with Abraham, we first read about Sodom when Lot turns his eyes towards that place and we see that God says to us through the scriptures there that it is a city of great wickedness full of rebels against God. And Lot, Abraham's nephew, has over time drawn closer and closer to the city. In Genesis 13, he was sort of living in suburban Sodom, you might say. But now by Genesis 19, Lot is living in the urban center of Sodom. He is a key citizen in many ways in the place, which explains why he's sitting in the gate of the city in verse 1. The gate of the city in an ancient city was a place for commerce and political life and business to take place. And so we find our... um, protagonist in many ways, Lot, here in the middle of this place when these two angelic visitors come to visit. These visitors have been with Abraham for the last couple of weeks, and we found out last week that their true intention is to discover, because God has sent them as investigators, what is going on in Sodom, why the outcry has arisen against the place to God. And so we see here this morning that they go and discover what's happening, and God executes judgment. He executes judgment on the city. Now, this is a difficult chapter. It's especially a difficult chapter for modern people, for Western people, for individualistic Americans. And so I want to say at the outset that if you find yourself here this morning, no matter where you are spiritually, no matter where you are in your thoughts about Christianity, if you find yourself here this morning offended or uncomfortable or irritated at this story, then... um, I want you to just sort of sit in that for the next few minutes, uncomfortable though it may be, and allow the story to speak to you. Allow yourself to perhaps even suspend your disbelief for a moment and consider why this story might be in the Bible. I think one of the main reasons it's in the Bible is because it tells us what God is really like. Not what people think him to be like or imagine him to be like. And in learning... What God is really like, we learn about the hope that God gives us to escape the judgment that we deserve. So, if you want to ignore this, 
or dispute this or get angry at this after a first reading, then I want to just encourage you to stick it out with me for the next few minutes, okay, and explore this together. So let's engage our minds, let's focus our attention, let's open our hearts, and, uh, and let's go. Here's the big idea. The real God is perfectly just and also offers mercy to those who will repent and believe the gospel. That's the main point of Genesis 19. The real God is perfectly just, but offers forgiveness to those who will repent and believe the gospel. Okay, let's work our way through the story looking at three points. First, the deservedness of God's judgment. Second, the delivery of Lot's family. And third, the destruction of Sodom's people. That's the outline for you type A note takers. There you go. Okay, so let's go. Point one. The deservedness of God's judgment, we see that particularly in verses 1 through 14. Now, as I said, God has come to investigate what's happening in Sodom. Verses eight, Chapter 18, verse 21 said, the outcry has come to him. And so God wants to know what's going on. So he sends these two angels to investigate in verses 1 through 14 of chapter 19. And so immediately we should take this point in, okay? One of the basic ideas of the Christian faith and of the scripture is that God is the judge of the world. And anytime God is going to administer judgment, God does so with perfect fairness and equity. Um, He is going down to investigate thoroughly what is happening in Sodom and Gomorrah before he prosecutes. And so one thing to immediately see is that God here is not being random or indiscriminate or capricious in his judgment of this place. He sends these two angels and it becomes very apparent early on in their investigation of the city that Sodom is a morally repugnant place. I mean, did you read what happened? Like the Bible sometimes is. This is a blunt and a brutal story. The angels go to see Lot at the gate, and Lot receives them very kindly, verse 2. They tell him they want to spend the night in the town square, but Lot thinks this is a bad idea, and that forebodes very poorly already for the rest of the story, right? So he urges them to stay with him. Verse 3 says he pressed them strongly. He twisted their arms, so to speak. And so they consent, and they stay the night with Lot. And in the middle of the night, the men of Sodom surround the house. And notice that the author goes out of his way to make it clear that this is almost everyone. All the men of the city, he says, both young and old, surround the house and ask Lot to send out the two men. They're all a part of this horror, verse 4. And the very clear intent is to sexually abuse and violate these two angels. Painful, though, this is to consider. The Bible is very stark in its description of what people are capable of when given over to rebellion against God the King. So Lot goes outside, verse 6, he shuts the door after him, shutting the men in the house, and he attempts to reason with these men, verse 7. And then he makes just this insanely horrible suggestion that he offer up his two young maiden daughters instead who were engaged to be married, verse 8. Now, just a brief word here about what Lot is thinking. Some commentators actually try to defend this, which in my estimation is one of, I've read some bad things in commentaries, and that's got to be like top three. Worst things, worst interpretations I've ever read. Um, This cannot be defended. This is a despicable, confused, grotesque idea on the part of Lot here. It's, I think, in part a sign of the corrupting influence that has infected him since he's lived in Sodom. 
And so the men say, no, in fact, Lot, we're going to do worse to you than we do to these guys. And then these angels step in and they strike these men blind and get Lot out of danger's way. So the point is that the outcry that God in heaven has heard against this place is verified and legitimized. That's the point. This is utterly despicable behavior. And it doesn't take someone who is a Christian to see that. This is something that would be acknowledged and recognized by people of all stripes, by people of all sorts. Later on in the Bible, Sodom becomes a sort of benchmark for moral corruption and deviant behavior. The prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah condemn other nations for acting like Sodom, for their greed, for their injustice towards the poor and widows and orphans, for their sexual perversion in all forms, for their gluttony, for their lecherous way of life. This is a place that is just morally backwards. They've lost almost all moral compass. The wickedness and the evil is clear. And it's important for me to state and affirm that as we study this together. Listen, evil exists. Evil is a real thing in this world. This is violent and wrong. This behavior that we read about is something that deserves retribution. And the fact that we all just sort of inherently know that tells us that there is a moral framework both in the way our minds operate and in the way the universe itself is structured. Okay? Everybody just knows and acknowledges in some capacity that this sort of behavior deserves punishment. So that's the reason that this story arouses such disgust and ire. It's because it's morally repugnant. It's contrary to the very fabric of a universe made by a good God. Okay? So the clear meaning of the story, if nothing else, is this. The real God will judge the evil and the wickedness of the world. God is a righteous judge. God is just. God will destroy all that is opposed to him. That's what we see here. And as I mentioned earlier, God's justice is never unfair or undeserved. It's never capricious or random. The people of Sodom very clearly here are rebels against God. They fully deserve what God pours out on them. And now, it's a gross understatement for me to say at this point that a lot of people in our culture have major problems with a teaching like this. So we just have to take a second and address it. Um, maybe you have problems with this, and I want you to know we're glad you're here. It's okay for you to express those problems and those questions. Uh, I sometimes have some similar questions, and, and really the problem is usually stated something like this. I can't believe in a God who would do something like this, <laughs> a God of justice. Um, I can't believe in the God of hell and judgment that Christians speak about. My God is a God of love, not wrath. So, so how do we deal with that issue in our own thinking and maybe even among those in whom we, with whom we interact? Uh, there's a lot I could say. Let me just say this. It is simply not true that a God of love and a God of justice are mutually incompatible. It, it's simply not true that God cannot both be just and loving. I, I would actually want to put forth this idea for you instead. God's justice is actually essential to his moral perfection. 
The judgment of God, I would even say it this strongly, flows from the fact that God is love. God is a God of justice because God is a God of love. Think about it with me, okay? God made this world. He made this world in beauty and in peace and in harmony. And he loves this world. And when he watches the world that he has made become unraveled, he is angered at its unraveling. My children love Legos. And they go to great lengths from time to time to build Lego creations that I'm really impressed with. And from time to time, I might trip over something in the playroom and my elbow will hit a Lego creation and the Legos will go flying all over the place, ruining hours of work for my children. My children have made this Lego creation in beauty and harmony and justice and joy. And when they see what dad has done, they might be a little bit angry because they love what they have made. And God's the same way on a much more significant level. God loves this world. And when he sees the world that he made tarnished and ruined and destroyed through human sin and evil, it makes him angry. So God's justice in punishing wrongdoing actually flows out of the fact of God's love. Those things are not mutually exclusive categories. Another thing to think about is this. Most cultures in the history of the world have not had the problem with God's justice that our culture has now. Why do you think that might be? There's a lot of reasons. I think one of the main ones is that in our modern, individualistic, Western culture, we really have it relatively easy. Let me put it this way. For people in the world who are victimized, who are oppressed, whose families have been murdered by some political regime that's tyrannical, who live in poverty, making $1 a day or less, who have to scrape and claw to even get through the day because of the war-torn country in which they just happen to be born. For people in that part of the world, they don't hate the idea of a God of justice. They actually rejoice in the idea of a God of justice because they've experienced on a very significant level injustice. Those who have experienced injustice of the sort that many in our world still today experience long for God to be just. They don't shun the idea of God's justice. Miroslav Volf is a theologian who teaches at Yale, and I don't endorse everything he says, but he has a great book called Exclusion and Embrace where he speaks about this. And Volf is from the Balkans, a very war-torn region in Eastern Europe, as many of you know. And at one point in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, he writes this. I've got it on the screen, so listen to this with me. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. It takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. Vols making that exact point. When you grow up in the Balkans, you can understand and even long for God to be just. So God is just because God is love. God judges the world because God loves the world. And there's great hope there for the oppressed and the victimized. And one other thing really quick. And I want to say this as graciously as I can, but let me say it anyway. It is hypocritical, actually, to be offended at God's justice on the one hand and then demand justice for wrongs that you see in the world on the other hand. Why is that hypocritical? 
it's hypocritical because when you demand justice for any wrong that you see or experience, you are assuming in that demand that there is a moral fabric to the universe. That there is such a thing as right and wrong. That there is a standard of morality that has been violated. And because you're made in God's image, you long for that wrong to be made right. And the way that wrong is made right is by the God of the universe in the final day making it so. And so it actually speaks to the goodness and truth of God's justice when we are offended at injustice in our own lives. That's a part of what the story of Sodom teaches us about the real God. So God makes it clear through this story that the Sodomites deserved the justice that was meted out upon them. Okay? That's the first and perhaps the most important point of this text. But secondly, we see something else. This is definitely a text about judgment. We see the deservedness of judgment. As, as uncomfortable as that might make us, we need to let the Bible speak into areas in which we might not agree at times. We need to let God speak into areas in which we might feel uncomfortable at times because that, that might just mean that we have a real relationship with him. If you don't ever feel uncomfortable because of your relationship with God, then maybe something's wrong. Just like any other real relationship, sometimes you might need to have someone speak into your life and change the way you're thinking. So we see that God is just, but we also see that God is merciful. And we see that in particular in the delivery of Lot's family. We read about that in verses 15 through 22. Now, Lot is a very interesting case study in Genesis 19. We know that Lot is a believer. Second Peter chapter 2 actually calls him righteous, if you can believe that. It calls him righteous. Lot has faith in Jesus, the coming Savior. Lot knows the real God. But Lot is also clearly morally compromised. He is, he is drawn to the allure of Sodom's debauchery. And, and in his story, Lot's moral decisions are, to say the very least, not impressive. Uh, he doesn't end up in a very good place. Uh, you know, I mean, just look at the story. He shows all sorts, after he offers his daughters to these men, he shows all kinds of hesitancy in leaving Sodom. Did y'all catch that? Even when God makes it clear to him that judgment is coming quickly, look at verse 16. We read, he lingered. He dawdled. You know, you dads that are ready for your family to get ready so you can make it on time to wherever you're going, the dawdling, that's what Lot is doing here, although it's much more significant that he get out than it is that you be on time to whatever, okay? Lot is lingering. Lot is dawdling. He's taking his time. And that shows, among other things, that he is a man divided. He wants to have his cake and eat it too. I mean, who argues with their rescuers like Lot does here? <laughs> really? 18 through 21, they say, get out, go to the mountains, destruction's coming. And Lot says, you know, I really don't want to go to the mountains. I don't have my air mattress packed. Can I go to Zoar instead? It's a small little city. And will you please spare that city? Because I really... I really want to be able to eat at, you know, the restaurants that I've grown accustomed to because of my lifestyle here in central Sodom. And the mountains, really? I mean, come on. He argues with God. I mean, come on. It, it reminds me of um, one of the Chronicles of Narnia and the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. We read about uh, Lucy and Edmund and one of their relatives. I think he's their cousin, Eustace. They make their way into Narnia. And early, early in the book, they get captured by slave traders in Narnia. And they're rescued by King Caspian. 
whom Lucy and Edmund know, but Eustace, this is his first time in Narnia, so he doesn't know them. And you would think they'd be grateful for being rescued out of the slave trade by King Caspian. But throughout the early part of the book, Eustace is, I mean, he's just a wretch. He's a punk kid. At one point in the book, Eustace is on the ship, on the Dawn Treader, and he's writing in his diary. This is after Caspian has rescued him. And here's what he says. They treated me scandalously. They were rottenly unfair. This cowardly Caspian threatened me and then started patronizing me. He's an odious, stuck-up prig. I stayed in bed all day today. I mean, Caspian did rescue you out of slavery, Eustace. Get with the program, man. That's kind of how Lot is pictured here in Genesis 19. He's morally compromised. He's a half-hearted disciple. Yet, yet, God gets him out. God rescues Lot and shows him amazing grace. You know, verse 16, the story says the angels literally dragged him. The men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. And the Lord, being merciful to him, brought him out and set him outside the city. Lot is half-hearted, Lot is weak, Lot is selfish, Lot is argumentative, but God gets him out of the city. God intervenes and pulls him off of the precipice of destruction and death. And it is here that we see the mercy of God quietly moving forward in the story of the scripture. Even in a chapter about God's terrifying judgment. Let me ask you, can you see yourself in Lot's story at all? Part of what we should see is the danger of being compromised. The danger of pursuing a love of what the world can offer, what the city of man can offer, and also trying to pursue God at the same time. No one can serve two masters, Jesus tells us. Yet we should also see ourselves in that just as God did with Lot, so God does with all of us who have followed Jesus. Listen, our only hope of rescue from God's just judgment is if he seizes us and pulls us out of it. Do you know that? God has to initiate our rescue as he did with Lot. God has to accomplish our rescue as he did with Lot. We're like Lot. Lot's not like, get me out of here, God. I'm dying to leave Sodom. No, they have to drag him out of there tooth and nail. And it's the same with us. None of us says, God, I really want to be saved. It's all, you know, I've, just, I've seen because of my own intellectual persuasion and my moral aptitude that I should be a Christian and I'm, I'm ready for you to come and help me now. No, none of us are like that. God seizes us and drags us into his kingdom. He gives us a new will to desire and to follow him, but none of us would ever desire and follow him if he didn't first give us that new will by his spirit's sovereign power. I'm reminded here in this story of what Jesus says in John 6. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, seizes him, takes him or her out of their lifestyle that is opposed to God's law and into God's kingdom fully by his grace. Listen, one thing to get is this, you know you are beginning to understand what the gospel of grace is. When you can look at your own life, if I can personalize this for a moment, when you can look at your life and say, it is a miracle that I am a Christian. 
I would never have come to Jesus on my own. God had to rescue me out of death and hell and ruin and misery. God did this for me. I didn't do this. Only through the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus do I have any hope for a life that will bring me flourishing, for a life of forgiveness, for a life of peace. The gospel is apparent here. When you begin to think that way about your own life, that's actually a sign that you're beginning to understand what the gospel's really like and experience its power. God is intent to rescue people for himself. People who are half-hearted, people who are undeserving, people who are stuck between two worlds through his powerful mercy and love. That's what he did with Lot. That's what he does with us. We see his grace even in the midst of this story of judgment. So the deservedness of judgment, the delivery of Lot's family, and then finally, the destruction of Sodom's people. We read about that there beginning in verse 23 and going through 29. Lot, God gets Lot out of the city along with his family. And then we read in 24 and 25 that the Lord rained down. He deluged. That's the literal word. By the way, same word that's used in the flood. A lot of parallels with the flood here. He deluged fire and brimstone, sulfurous fire on the entire city. And notice that the emphasis there is on the fact that God is the one who did this. It's repeated twice in verse 24. The Lord reigned, and it's from the Lord out of heaven. And everything is wiped out. All the people, everything in the city, even what grew on the ground. His destruction is total and immense. So God examines the wickedness of the place. God determines the verdict. And then God executes the judgment. You know, how are we to respond to this? What are we to make of it? You know, Any time in the scriptures that we read about God's judgment, we are to... We are to take it as a warning to flee from the coming final judgment ourselves. That is undoubtedly a major part of what we are to understand when we read about judgment in the Bible. And in fact, in a later letter in the New Testament, 2 Peter, we read Peter, the apostle, using the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah to do exactly that, to warn his readers to do all they can to escape the judgment that will come at the end. Listen to what Peter writes. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of the Lord as salvation. Just as God judged the world in the flood, just as God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, the Bible says again and again that at the end of the times, what the scriptures call the day of the Lord, Jesus Christ is going to return and judge the world. And God is going to perfectly and righteously administer justice and punish and condemn the wicked and evil in this world. 
And I want you to hear this. There is no evil act that will go unpunished. Every secret deal made in the halls of power to plunder the oppressed will be judged. Every lie and falsehood that tarnishes people made in God's image will be judged. Every act of violence against the weak and the powerless will be judged. Every murder of the innocent, the unborn, the elderly, anyone will be judged. Every instance of verbal, physical, sexual, and emotional abuse will be judged. There is no one who can escape. No sex trafficker, no slaveholder, no adulterer, no racist, no thief, no hypocrite will escape. Every act of rebellion committed against God the King in his kingdom will be righteously, equitably, and justly punished. He will make all things right. He will put evil to an end. That day is coming. Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead, as the Apostles' Creed tells us. So listen to the words of the scripture. Listen to the Holy Spirit speaking to each one of us this morning. Consider the coming judgment of God, his just and holy judgment, and use it as an opportunity to repent. Be diligent to be found in him, as Peter wrote. Paul, in Romans 11, verse 22, asks us to note the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness towards you. And Romans 2 says that God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. So today, the primary practical application for you is that no matter where you are spiritually, no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how how many times you've been to church, no matter what you think of your own life morally, the Holy Spirit of the living God is calling you to repent of your sin. To see that you deserve God's judgment. To see the severity of God. But also to receive his kindness and his mercy if you call on him in faith. Listen, one day every single one of us will appear by ourselves before the judgment seat of God. And Jesus, the risen Lord, like his father, is holy and pure. We are neither. We live under his eye. He knows our secrets. Everything we've ever thought, everything we've ever done, everything we've ever tried to hide will be made known, played back like a videotape before God. And in that moment, if we know ourselves at all, we will know then, and I hope we will know now, that we are not fit to face him. So what are we to do? The New Testament answer is this. Jesus' answer is this. Call upon the coming judge to be your savior. Seek Jesus and you will find him. And you will discover that you are actually beginning to look forward to that future meaning with joy. Every sin that's ever been committed is going to be perfectly and righteously judged by God. Either you are going to be judged and condemned for your own sin on the judgment day. Or Jesus is going to be condemned and judged for your sin. The simple choice is this, which would you prefer? The gospel is this, Jesus offers himself in your place to take the just judgment from God that you deserve. God himself is willing to bear the punishment for our sin. And so when you can see that and run to that, the day of judgment no longer is a day of dread, it's a day of expectation. 
And so the simple call that the scriptures very clearly teach us again and again and again, that the story of Sodom teaches us again and again and again, is that we must acknowledge that we cannot stand before God on our own, that we deserve his judgment and run to Jesus Christ in faith. He will receive any who come to him. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter who you are. Trust in Jesus and you will be saved. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your love for us in the gospel. And Lord, as we read these difficult passages, things that are really quite hard for us to think about and consider, God, we pray for your Holy Spirit to help us understand and see uh, the severity of God and the kindness of God. God, may we see, maybe even in new and fresh ways today, that our own rebellion against you renders us guilty and the verdict has been made known. We deserve judgment. We deserve your justice. And yet, God, you have made a way for us to experience forgiveness and pardon through taking that judgment on yourself in the cross. God, may we turn to that and believe that. May we see our, our own need and then trust in Jesus. And God, as we think about and read about these really quite terrifying stories from the Old Testament. And as we read these letters in the New Testament, God, we pray that you would help us by your spirit to personalize these things in our lives, to not live in fear or in dread, but to live in the hope that is offered to us in Jesus. Will you do that for us even this morning, God? Thank you for this time together. Spirit, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.